We're going to start today's session with Gaurav Jain, Managing Partner of F4 Capital. Gaurav, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And I was just listening to your opening, um, you know, opening sort of uh, description of what you're doing. It, you know, it's incredible, right? Because with the internet these days, there's entrepreneurs like all over the world, right? And it's some, yes. at some level, it's unfortunate that we can't be involved in companies everywhere. You know, we tend to have a lot more portfolio companies in the Bay Area or in the U.S. generally. We have a few outside, but it's, it's great to see what you're doing because I think there's entrepreneurship uh, talent everywhere, and there's great companies that can be built everywhere in the world. So it's actually, I, I didn't know a whole lot about, uh, you know, your, your mission, but that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and, and as you heard me say, one million by one million is one million entrepreneurs times one million in revenue. I did not say we are trying to fund a million companies, which I don't think right. is viable, actually. So, uh, however, of course, we have also a, a large community of entrepreneurs who are in the venture path. So uh, that's why we want to talk to people like yourself, and in particular, with your specific focus, which is pre-seed investments, we are very, very interested in hearing your perspective because, as you know, that part of the ecosystem is very underserved. People want validated businesses. People want, you know, seed, post-seed, and, and now the pre-seed is where uh, the tricky part of the equation is. So uh, tell us about a four capital. What are you trying to do? How are you positioning yourselves, and we'll, uh, let's get to get you introduced to our audience. Awesome. Thank you. So Afora Capital is a $47 million vehicle exclusively focused on investing in pre-seed companies, and that makes us the largest fund that's focused on pre-seed. Mm -hmm. And my partner and I, we started this fund in 2016. Uh, both of us had been in venture for a few years, so my personal background real quick software engineer by training, and then I moved into product. I was one of the first product managers for Android. I did that for a few years, saw the platform go from, you know, less than a million total users to about a million new installations a day, and of course, two billion people use it today. Uh, then I switched gears into venture. Uh, I was at a fund called Founder Collective, uh, doing seed investments. Uh, but what I noticed, you know, within for four and a half years, is that a seed round went from what was around a million to two million dollar round when I joined Founder Collective in 2012 mm -hmm. to a three to five million dollar round. In a lot of cases, I think in 2016 there was like 98 seed rounds that were over five million dollars in size. And, and and for most of these companies, seed round was not their first round. Right? They raised. They had to raise some money before there because, as you mentioned, you know, investors are looking for scale or looking for some level of traction, product market fit before they're ready to invest. So these founders struggled to raise that round before the seed round because there just weren't that many institutional investors willing to invest. My partner's uh, background is similar, software engineer. He was the first product manager at Twitter, one of the first employees, and then he was an investor in a series A and B fund called Foundation Capital. And both of us noticed something similar, as I alluded to, that there was this gap, right, in for, for founders to be able to raise that sort of first round of funding before there's traction, before there's product market fit, before it's clear whether it's going to work or not. Uh, and we saw that gap, I saw that as an opportunity, uh, left our respective funds where we had a great path, but felt that we really you know, had a passion for investing early and felt we could, be, we could create value. So we left, uh, raised, uh, raised some money uh, primarily from institutional investors. So 
pension trusts, sovereign wealth funds, so on and so forth, who also saw an opportunity uh, to fill this gap and, and have outsized returns, right? Because the competition is less in this space, you can get a pretty good valuation for these companies, and then for the ones that work, you know, you, you get outsized returns. So we raised this vehicle, uh, we've invested about 20 companies so far. You know, our typical check size is somewhere between kind of 250K to, I'd say 600K or so. The rounds are, uh, the smallest one we've probably done is like a $330,000 round. Uh, on the larger end, they tend to be around a million, million and a half dollars. Uh, but in all of these cases, first round of funding, uh, these companies were not ready to kind of scale, you know, sales and user acquisition. They really had to focus on product. Uh, and given my partner and I, my background in, in being product managers, having been there early at the ground floor, uh, we could really be helpful, right? Uh, first of all, we can identify really strong product talent, which is what we look for above all else, is do you have an ability to build um, a product that customers will love? right, a product that's 10x better than what's already out there. Um, because there's no traction yet, we need to get some level of confidence that when you do launch this product that it's going to take off, right? And I think the way we do that is start to understand, you know, how good the product DNA is on the team, what non-obvious insights that the team has around building this product. Uh, and if we get excited, you know, we make an investment and get very actively involved with these companies between the pre-seed and, and sort of the seed round. Or in some cases, we've seen companies go straight from pre-seed to series A, right? It really depends on what you can accomplish in sort of that 12 months uh, post our investment. Um, and, and, you know, what sectors, obviously, series investors are actively investing in, so on and so forth. Um, so we've done about 20 investments. Uh, across the board, you know, some are, um, you know, B2B, building SaaS, enterprise software, uh, BDC, um, you know, e-commerce. So we're, we're less kind of caught up on the exact sector um, that you're building a company in. We're more interested in sort of the application and the use case, right? We believe that the founders know exactly where the opportunity is. They can point us to where the world is going. And in fact, they're the ones that are going to build the, that, that vision of the world anyway. So we don't get too caught up in sort of predicting where the world's going to go. Instead, we spend our time looking for the best founders uh, that are early where we can where we can be helpful. When you say early and um, you know precede, can you put a bit more color around that? Are you willing to make concept financing? Like if yeah, somebody just, presents the concept and doesn't have an MVP or a product, are you willing to put that 250, 300k in? The short answer is yes. Uh, the long answer, though is these days it's gotten so cheap to build an MVP, especially if you're building a software product, which is where 80-90% um, of our investments are going to be is a software-heavy business. Uh, or even if it's a services, um, you know, business like a, you know, Uber, for example, like a transportation business where you're moving stuff, it, it's software-enabled, right? So, so to get something out there to show some interest from customers, you don't need a whole lot of money, right? Between sure. Amazon Web Services, which is stay as you go, between all the open source software, which is free, I mean, these days to build a prototype, literally all you need is a laptop and access to the internet, right? Um, for, for, for which you don't necessarily need capital and, and a few months of human labor. I think human labor is really where the, where the bottleneck is. 
and, and that's what we look for, are founders that are able to build a product themselves, right, or at least one of the founders is technical. Uh, I think the challenge becomes when both founders are, are non-technical and they need to go hire engineers before they can write a single line of code. Those ones are a little bit harder for us for, for, for a lot of reasons we can, we can dig into if you'd like. Uh, so so in, in most cases, the founders have been able to get something out there without needing any capital. Um, so a typical trajectory would be, um, you know, you're, you're working at a, at a tech company, um, it's a couple of founders, um, they have this idea that they've been, uh, they've been uh, toyed with for, for a few months, maybe they've been hacking on the evenings and the weekends, um, and they get really excited, they leave the job, right? And, and that's when we get to know them, right? It's typically around the time when they're, they're leaving, quitting their job and, and moving on. Uh, but then we stay in touch with them and, and help them for a few months as they are kind of hacking on products, hacking on the exact direction. And then when they're ready to, and, and part of the reason we don't invest in sort of that concept stage is because a lot of times that concept changes, right? Very quickly within the first few months as the engineers start to, to iterate. Uh, so you don't want to raise money too early from a founder's perspective either because if you raise money getting investors excited about this direction, but you realize that's actually not the direction you're excited about um, mm -hmm. for a whole host of reasons, you want to go in this direction, that becomes a little bit tense, right? Um, because now you have to convince the investors that is the new, the new direction is the right direction to go in. So because the, the cycle times are so short in the first few months and so much is going to change, we encourage founders to kind of wait, you know, for, for three to four months until they have some semblance of kind of the direction they want to run it, at least for the next six to 12 months, right? Uh, there's still going to be a lot of iteration. There's still going to be a lot of sort of micro pivots in the first mm -hmm. 12 months. And something looks like in five years is going to be very different, and that's okay, but we need some level of clarity for the next 12 months. And, and hence, we rarely invest in sort of the, hey, I just came up with this idea this morning or, you know, two weeks ago, I've been thinking a lot about it and I'm looking for some money. Um, we, 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 tend to, we tend to wait for a little bit. You know, the cases where we have invested is founders we've known for, for a while. Uh, they have launched products before. They have launched, you know, maybe they built a couple, or, couple of companies before, and, and we just want to be, you know, uh, in partnership with this founder. Uh, but I'd say 90% of the companies, if not more, they have some prototype, something that we can get our hands around. I got it. So you're basically, your sweet spot is technical founders who have tinkered for a few months and built something and has an idea of where they want to position that product, and then you take it from there. You're okay with the micro pivots, but you have some directional uh, movement already in swing, basically. Yeah, but the one thing I want to clarify is we're very comfortable taking on traction risk. Right, we're very comfortable sure, sure, when you sure, look at the prototype. Sure. It doesn't have a lot of traction yet, right? It doesn't make any money yet, um, and it's not clear if, yeah, sure, maybe a hundred customers love it. Does that mean a million are going to like it? We don't know, right? That is something we're comfortable with. Uh, but, 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 so we, we don't need to wait for you know your, your business and humming and hoing before we we invest. But, but that sort of initial work, we you know we we like to see that. But you know, for a B two B business. 100 customers, getting to 100 customers is not an easy thing to do right oh, away. Sure, sure. And for B2B, like, depends on obviously the size of your customer, right? If they're paying you $10 a month, you know, getting 1,500 customers is not hard. If they're paying you $10,000 a month, then maybe one or two is great. So, of course, it depends on, um, it depends on, on, on the size. Got it. Exactly, so, um, exactly. And if it's a consumer company, you know, you want to see even more than 100. More than that, yeah. So, um, Quickly, what about geography? Are you local focused or U.S. focused, global focused? What's the comfort zone? 
Yeah, both of us are based in San Francisco, um, you know, but our mandate doesn't prevent us from investing anywhere in the world. Okay. Um, you know, I'd say our, our strong bias is towards uh, U.S.-based companies or a U.S. and Canada. I would say I, I grew up in Canada, so definitely the soft spot there. I've made a few investments in Canada. But I'd say uh, we have a bias towards that just because, you know, we have a network there. We can be helpful, um, you know, for, for recruiting, for follow-on investments. Uh, for for business development, a whole host of reasons that you know, just we can do a much better job for you in North America. But we have made investments outside. There's a company that's based in India um, that were investors in Ottawa Four. Um, you know, so so we're we're totally um, open to non-American okay. investments as well. But you know, the bars just going to be higher. I think what we would want to see are really mature founders that need sort of less of our help and are able to. Um, you know, tap into their local network um, and, and perhaps even raise money from Silicon Valley follow-on investors while even though they're sitting, you know, somewhere else. Well, the the issue that um, you you bring up India, the issue that we see in India is that if you're doing, um, you know, let's say B2B SaaS out of India, which is a very popular category in the Indian investment pool, um, you kind of very soon realize that you're going to need to build it as a global business and you're better off being based in the U.S. because uh, for a lot of reasons, the access to capital in India is okay right now, especially in the early stages. There are There is capital. But exits are few and far between. So it's from, from the point of view of exits, people are realizing that uh, they're better off being a U.S. company with the Indian subsidiary as opposed to the other way around. So um, two questions. First and foremost, we'd like to learn a bit more about you, the highlights of your portfolio and give us some of your thought process on how you decided on these particular companies. What was it about those companies that really struck you and attracted you and convinced you that there is something interesting and important in there? Yeah. Uh, so what we look for, as we were talking earlier, are the founders and their sort of product DNA and ability to build um, a, a, a game-changing product above all else, right? Because the stage three investors, not much traction. It's not even clear what market you're going after. I know a lot of investors will tell you, you know, go after a big market because, uh, you know, you're going to get a small percentage of that, and that's sort of the most important thing. Uh, for better or for worse, that's not sort of how we think, uh, just because our best companies tend to, be in markets that it wasn't very clear when they when they got started at the stage we invested in. So I'll share a few portfolio companies, um, both from my old fund founder collective where I was um, for many years, and then and then before. Out of founder collective, some of the notable ones are um, uh, did the seed in a company called Cruise Automation that was building driverless cars uh, that was eventually acquired by General Motors and and Kyle, who's the founder CEO now, runs autonomous division for for GM. Uh, and it was a great exit for for all the investors, um, you know, because we invested in the seed and it was acquired by uh, acquired for for close to a billion dollars. Um, the reason I got excited about cruise automation is I remember uh, Kyle drove me down the 101 here in San Francisco when he was giving me a demo of what he had built, and it was a pretty primitive product, right? All it did um, was keep the car in between the two lanes in a highway, right? Barely, by the way, because it started raining that day and, and, and the autonomous uh, controls went off. Um, but it was very it was a very rudimentary product. But there was like two people in, on the team at that time. 
Um, and I said, Kyle, um, look, I've worked for Google before. I know Google's been investing in driverless cars for a long time. They're far along. Tesla's thinking about it, so on and so forth. This is 2014 or so, um, maybe 2013. I, I said, uh, help me understand why is the startup going to thrive and, and win and outcompete, you know, Google and Tesla and everybody else. He said, look, I, I understand it's really hard to build a very R&D-heavy company as a startup, as a venture-backed startup, but all of those folks are working on the product in the lab, right? They're trying to, you know, get a perfect product out there, and then they're going to scale. As a startup, and especially as a, as a startup entrepreneur who thinks like a consumer uh, product manager, I'm going to get a, a, a very small fraction of the final product out there in the market in the hands of the customer. And I'm going to gather a lot of data, and I'm going to learn a lot, because when it comes to driverless cars, data is really where, um, you know, you win or lose. The more data you can gather, the better your models are. Um, he said, I'm going to gather a lot of data. So all I'm going to launch by the end of the year is an ability to keep your lane, um, you know, between uh, keep your car in between the two lanes and, and change lanes on a highway. Something very simple, which a lot of cars already have, but, you know, I'm going to get some early adopters to try the product with the vision that I can build driverless cars down the road. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to uh, put a big hard drive in the trunk, and I'm going to give you free car washes. And then when every week you come in for a free car wash, I'm going to download all that data. Anyway, he had all these insights that were uh, – they were not obvious. Uh, they made a lot of sense. Uh, it was a very lofty vision, but I got that feeling that well, there's a lot of risk and it could totally go to zero. Uh, but if he's right, right, if some of these things work out, this could be really massive, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we look for in the companies is we don't make a list of what can go wrong because that list, unfortunately, is just too long um, and too real. Uh, instead, we look for what can go right, right? If the founder is able to accomplish these, these sort of counterintuitive things, um, could this be a massive business? Could this be a massive opportunity? Could this be a multi-billion dollar opportunity, right? And does the founder have the ability to kind of go execute on kind of V1 of the product, right? Get some traction, get some usage, and then learn, right? And figure out V2, which neither of us know what that is, right? They have that ability to kind of you know, call them micro pivot earlier, micro pivoted to V2 and V3 and so on and so forth, right? Um, and, and Kyle did a, did a brilliant job at that. Um, they're going to be launching driverless cars uh, very soon. Another company I invested in, out of founder collective, a company called Firebase, um, which was two technical founders. It was actually the fourth startup. The first three had failed. And they were building a chat engine, and as they were building the chat engine, a um, chat app, they realized the, the back-end software to build, enable the chat app was actually really complicated. Um, because you had to keep, you know, multiple parties in sync and so on and so forth. So what they did is they took that engine and actually productized that and said, everybody else who's trying to build real-time products, real-time web apps, let's make, let's make this engine available to them. Uh, and that's when we came in, right? They said, um, and what I liked about those founders were uh, very authentic, very organic, right? They'd been uh, building this chat app and realized the opportunity was actually somewhere else um, and then ran with that. Um, they had a, a really interesting vision around, um, how hard it is to build real-time products. I'd worked at Google, had seen how hard it is to build Google Docs, for example, which is sort of this real-time functionality. Uh, and, and if you can enable that, you know, for engineers to build that within minutes as opposed to weeks and, 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 and months, um, that could be pretty powerful, right? So, um, so we invested in that company that was acquired by Google, uh, and that was a great effort for us. Uh, out of a four, uh, the portfolio is still new, you know, 16 months old, uh, but we invested in a company called BoxBot, for example. Founders came out of Uber and Tesla, uh, deep technical founders, 
And their insight was that, um, you know, parcel delivery, right, which is, you know, taking an e-commerce package to your house, 50% of that cost is literally in like the last like 100 feet or so as the UPS driver, the FedEx driver walks around the truck, drops off the package to your house and then drives to the next house and so on and so forth. So what if we can enable to an autonomous robot uh, the ability to ship a package to you, right? So they've delivered this really interesting supply chain where they can shave the cost for UPS and DHL quite substantially um, and get that parcel to your to your house. Uh, what we liked here was, again, the founders are very authentic, right? They, they were working instead of an Uber and Tesla. They had the right skill set. They've seen the opportunity to apply kind of driverless technology, but in a very different use case, right? And as we validated the use case, as we did some research on our own, we said that makes a lot of sense. Um, or we invested in a company called Overtime, started by Dan Porter, uh, who built the game Draw Something, uh, which was acquired by Zynga eventually, um, which is a great, great outcome for him. But he has a really uh, strong consumer kind of product instincts. And what you noticed was that um, millennials these days are not watching three-hour games on ESPN, right? They're instead consuming sports content on their, on their mobile phones, uh, and generally very small snippets, right? So what he does through his UGC kind of app uh, is acquire all this high school sports content. This is content that nobody owns the rights, right? Um, can, how can you acquire this, this sports content and then push it through the platform, right? Push it through Instagram, Facebook, whatever different channels there might be um, and get a lot of, like, so there's millions of these video views a month uh, because, you know, millennials just love this content and it's entertaining, it's short, um, and it's content that they can't access anywhere else. So, anyway, you can see there's a whole mixed bag of different different companies and different kind of sectors and applications, but the, the sort of the connecting thread is very strong founders in terms of product, uh, their ability to deliver product, their ability to understand what the customers want, um, having kind of non-obvious insights uh, so they can compete with the incumbents, um, and, and, you know, in all those cases, we invested very early. And you're looking for unicorns. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, that's sort of the uh, venture model, obviously, is the companies you invest in eventually become, you know, big independent businesses. But, you know, I, we don't get too caught up uh, on sort of what the eventual, you know, exit outcome looks like. I think part of what we tell our entrepreneurs is uh, stay capital efficient, right? Don't raise too much money uh, because when you raise too much money, you're forced to become a unicorn and you're forced to because – you know, if you're raising money at a $500 million post-money valuation, you can't sell it for 400 or, or even 600 right? You have to you have to pass that billion-dollar mark. Exit options um, become you know, really limited. Exactly, right, exactly. And in certain sectors, there's just not that much M&A activity um, to, for companies to buy, you know, other companies for, for billions of dollars, right? I think in, in tech, you see obviously Apple and Google, sometimes are Facebook buying multi-billion-dollar companies that are still very early. But in the rest of the world, that's actually not true. So we tell entrepreneurs just to, look, stay capital efficient, don't raise too much money, um, stay focused on the fundamentals of the business. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, I invested in a company called Skip the Dishes, which is a company based out of Winnipeg, Canada, uh, of all places. Um, you know, it's a company basically doing food delivery. So think of like, you know, Postmates, uh, but for, uh, for mid-market cities. So when, when Postmates and Uber Eats and everybody's kind of competing in, in New York and San Francisco, and they were, you know, in Columbus and, and, and places that they just know their food delivery service. They built a phenomenal business. They stayed capital efficient. They didn't raise too much money. They stayed focused on, on, on profitability. Um, and they, focused, they stayed focused on growth. And they eventually got acquired by Just Eat, which is a public company out of, out of the U.K., for um, something like $200 million, uh, Canadian dollars, which 
there's a great outcome for the founders, right, because they still own a significant portion of the company. There's a great outcome for the investors because we did not get diluted much because they didn't raise a whole lot of money after us. We own a How much total um, money did uh, did the company raise and, and uh, how much yeah, revenue think, did this to? Yeah, I mean, in total they raised, uh, I want to say sub $10 million. I forget the exact figure, but it was a small number, right? Um, relatively small for uh, a food delivery company. I, I don't know the numbers for like Postmates and stuff, but it, it's probably in the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, yeah. that they've raised. The skip raised a fraction of that. And by the way, their numbers were not that far off from some of these bigger companies. So, you know, again, it goes to show, and, and a big reason for that was because they were based in Winnipeg, right? Where the cost structure is just yes. phenomenally different. They had something like 200 employees or something like that at the time that they, they exited. There's no way you can afford to have them, that many people um, in your company and only raise that little money in like San Francisco or New York, right? So, uh, But it's also a matter of model. culture and philosophy, right? I think part of the problem we have created in this industry is this, you know, burn lots of capital and chase hyper growth at all costs and, and just make yourselves unsustainable for the off chance that you may get a big exit. This is not the way to build companies. Yeah, I, I, I thousand percent agree with you and that's what we tell entrepreneurs. Uh, I think the challenge in the industry a little bit is that there's so much capital chasing so few good opportunities that um, investors push these companies to raise more uh, more than they should. And unfortunately for a lot of founders, the amount of money you've raised becomes a barometer for how successful they are, which is absolutely yeah. not true, right? Um, given the number of employees and you have in your company. Um, what is your read yeah. of your cohorts in the pre-seed segment of the uh, market? Are there other players who are thinking the way you're thinking, or are they, you know, are you finding good syndicate op syndication opportunities in your uh, stage? You mean, are there other uh, peer investors, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, there are. There are a few. To share funds. your philosophy. Yeah, there are a few funds. I mean, it's an emerging category. There aren't a lot yet. I think that that may change in the next couple couple years, but. You know, I'd say there's probably uh, three to five uh, funds that are serious about pre-seed. Uh, some of them don't exclusively do pre-seed. They also do seed and, and, and other stages, but that are seriously thinking uh, about pre-seed and have the same philosophy that we have, which is, you know, do more with less. You know, don't raise too much capital and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and we do syndicate sometimes with them, though. It, we're not sort of dependent on the syndicate. We, first of all, uh, like to lead where we can. Um, so we're not waiting for signal. We're not waiting for somebody else to price around. We're very comfortable being the biggest check and, and pricing the round. And, and typically these rounds, you know, if it's a, it's a 750K round and if we're doing 500 of that, these founders can can finish off the rest with just angel investors. Um, and, 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 and in a lot of cases, we were, you know, 75% of the round, 75% or more of the round, which is, Totally, um, totally fine. And in fact, we prefer because we don't want the company to raise too much capital. Um, and a lot of times they want angel investors involved in the company anyway for strategic reasons. So, you know, there hasn't been, we're not dependent on syndicates, but we certainly love to co-invest where the opportunity is with some of our PRVCs. The other thing is 
you know, if you think of a funnel, right, there's obviously a lot of companies at the at the pre-seed, right? So there's just a lot of opportunity for all our peers to invest in. And, and these companies are obviously not obvious, and not everybody agrees that this is a good company to invest in. So, you know, there's not a consensus a lot of times on, on companies anyway, which is fine. So I think that creates a lot of value for founders because now they have more optionality to raise money. So if I don't get it, um, you might be able to raise money from, from a peer, which is, um, which is, which is totally fine. Awesome. Gaurav, this has been a very interesting conversation. We have talked to a couple of uh, pre-seeds, you know, uh, probably three out of five pre-seed funds have already been on the show. <laughs> so That's we great. will keep, uh, you know, keep uh, the dialogue going and, and hope to work with you uh, going forward. Thank you for coming today. Likewise. Thank you. And, and I'm easy to find. I'm just GJ on, on Twitter, but also our website is upport.vc. If we can ever be of help, our email addresses are on the website. Uh, please reach out and, and, and more than happy to chat. Fantastic. Folks, awesome. we're going to move to the 